0: My name is John Chafee. I was trained as a pastor and this is one of the ways in which I try to do something good with that education. This is Begin Again. So if you are looking for a nuanced or interesting take on the Jesus tradition and all of its wisdom and all of its perplexity and mystery, then you found the right place. sincerely hope that this helps you to rethink some things, to maybe grow in your own way for health and holiness, for your benefit and for the benefit of those around you. So again, welcome to Begin Again. There we go. So uh, this is the first interview I'm doing this year. I took kind of a hiatus from making podcasts since Christmas, and I'm very excited to talk to you, Tom. Uh, It's been actually, I guess, six years, seven years since I actually talked to you at Princeton. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. But thank you for for being willing to chat. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity, John. I'm looking forward to this. And uh, I don't know how to explain in a short form what it is that you do, Because you actually go around to conferences, you host conferences, obviously write books, but you're the head of a doctoral program as well. So if you don't mind explaining uh, what you do, that'd be great. I don't want to put words in your mouth.
1: My primary work and income is as the director of a doctoral program in open and relational theology at Northwind Theological Seminary. It's a program that follows the Oxford method, but it's entirely online, which means that I don't live in Florida, even though that's where the seminary is based. And uh-huh. then I write books and I do a lot of speaking and organize conferences, you know, try to make the world a better place.
0: Yeah. I had no idea it was all online. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I just everything's never...
1: online. I mean, I we do have an annual conference that's, Uh, In the Teton Mountains, it's, and a lot of the students go to that, but uh, yeah, the whole program's online.
0: I should have put that two two and two together, because sometimes you put up pictures of people defending their dissertation over Zoom, and I just still thought it's, oh, it's because of COVID, of course, but no. So then you must have students from all over the world. That's right. Yeah, I've
1: just, what... I guess it's been a month ago or so. Uh, One of my students from South Africa defended his uh, dissertation. But um, yeah, all
0: over the place. Uh, I don't know how else to get into it. Let's just go. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So um, I started this podcast for people that I knew along the Appalachian Trail. I would have topics of, uh, we would talk about Kierkegaard, and then it would weasel over into talking about Jesus. And by the end of me doing the Appalachian Trail, people were like, you need to start a podcast and just get keep going because we like our bonfire conversations. Yeah. But over time, it evolved into me um, just becoming curious and reaching out to people like you for things that I was interested in. And I was so fascinated that some of my hiker friends are still coming along on the ride, even though yeah, they're not sure. church going people. So, yeah. I would love to hear what's what would you give is a, a great shorter definition for what open and relational theology is yeah
1: okay yeah open and relational theology is a big umbrella under which there's lots of ideas movements people etc the two big ideas God is open and relational mean that first of all I'll start with relational God is both giving and receiving. God both acts on our behalf, but also is affected by us. Um, and that is kind of like a view of God that a lot of people swallow. They say, yeah, of course, that kind of mm-hmm. sounds like the God that I read about in the Bible. But as you as a theologian know that most of the major Christian theologians have not said that God is relational. They have said God is impassable. God has no mm-hmm. emotions in response to us, isn't affected by us Uh, And open and relational theology disagrees. The open part is a little more uncommon. It says Mm. that God moves through time like we do, so that the past is the past for God and the future has not even occurred. And God can't know what's going to happen in the future, at least with absolute certainty, because the future isn't yet knowable. There's nothing there to know yet. And so that way of thinking about God is not probably what a lot of people have embraced, even though I think it also fits nicely with Christian scripture.
0: So I, I believe it was in your lecture, your guest lecture six years ago, you said a sentence that I quote to other people since. Oh, and it's, all right. Yeah. And it, but it aligns with something you just said, that. One of the problems is we are trying to understand a Hebrew God through Greek vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And of course, then we have to throw into question, like you said, kind of omniscience. Does God know about the future in an exhaustive sense, the same way that we think he does that we don't? So i found across some of your writings and other things, sometimes open and relational theology seems to be more consistent with the hebrew scriptures and then when you think about the new testament was written by hebrew people as well so how do you see open and relational theology maybe reading the bible a little bit closer to how it's originally meant yeah
1: yeah i think it does match scripture better overall no i don't think any theology fits the Bible perfectly, because I don't think the Bible is a systematic theology. But if we ask the question, what are the overall themes? What's the broad vision of God and God's relationship to the world? Then I think open and relational thinking fits scripture better than any alternative I know. Um, And I also agree that, you know, the categories that most of the major Christian theologians have used when they're talking about God come more from Greek philosophy than any other place. And I'm not against philosophy. I mean, I'm, I'm a philosopher myself, uh, but the question is what kinds of philosophy better account for these major themes in scripture, especially as I see it, the themes of love. And I don't think the Greek metaphysics account for those major
0: themes very well. So we need something else. I mean, we're going to have to talk extensively about love, but I want to say your first, the book that I got from you first years ago was The Uncontrolling Love of God. Oh, good. That was the first one. But then I started dabbling a little bit more in psychology and and understanding like counseling principles and other things. And it's like a given across the board, at least in healthy relationships, that love does not seek to control. Right. And so it's interesting because open and relational theology seems to affirm what also the psychologists have been saying. It makes me think, oh my gosh, have we been thinking about God in a way that we would usually say for a person is actually quite abusive to be that controlling so. yet quote loving. So Yes,
1: I think so. I mean, imagine if we thought, let's take a traditional uh, husband-wife marriage situation, and let's because God has usually been thought of as male. Let's make God male in the situation. Imagine that kind of a marriage in which God, according to classical thinking, uh, is the one who is in control, either controlling every moment or at least only allowing the wife to do some things, but then stepping into control when you know the serious stuff happens.
0: <laughs> that would
1: not be a healthy relationship. Worse, uh, classic Christians have said that because God is perfect, and being perfect means not being changing in any sense whatsoever, God can't be affected by others. So imagine being to your partner. (laughs) In fact, to use some psychological language, the classic God of Augustine is ultimately only interested in God's self. God's the ultimate narcissist, in other words. Wow. Uh, now, uh-huh. Now, what people will do in the tradition when you point this out is they'll say, well, yeah, that sounds bad because, but you have to remember, they'll <laughs> say, God is totally different from us. We can't put God in human categories. And they'll they'll so characterize God as beyond anything we can imagine that after a while you start thinking, okay, so what do I really think I ought to believe about this God who is so inscrutable, unknowable, hidden, and mysterious? And it's, it often tempts people to sort of set all the God questions on the side and say, well, I guess we just have to focus on ethics. I think we ought to unite theology and ethics, and we ought to make real hmm. claims about who God is.
0: I want to say it's George MacDonald, the Scottish theologian. Uh-huh. I think it's he that says there is no activity that God might do that he does not also do as a father.
1: Oh Like as a, as a
0: loving paternal understanding. And if you actually have to take the role of father and put it to the side, then you're immediately dealing with an idolatry. You're dealing with a, a monstrosity. Yeah. Yeah, I so then, think you're right. If you were to um, think back over the times that you've been – teaching about this, I guess, online and in other ways, one thing that I thought was interesting is every so often, and I think you even did it today, you put up a quote or an email anonymously of someone that was really impacted in a beneficial way by thinking about God is uncontrolling, God is open to being affected, God is relational. How often do you get comments like that?
1: Probably on average, at least once a week, sometimes more. Um, you know, people have big questions and, you know, they want to know what is God like, but the answer they're typically given, shut them down rather than prompt them to explore. And right. um, I try to take questions seriously, look at the options and then not just say, well, great question. I actually try to propose plausible answers based on Reason, experience, scripture, science, psychology, etc. That
0: sounded very Wesleyan. It sounded That's like you were, right. <laughs> You're pulling out the the quadrilateral right there. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, then, what do you think have been some of the the parts of open and relational theology that people seem to engage the most? Probably
1: at least my version of open and relational theology. It's the questions of God's relation to suffering and evil that get people most intrigued and excited because Mm -hmm. I think that God simply doesn't have the ability to single-handedly prevent evil. Uh, If you've been around long enough, you'll know that the number one reason people don't believe in God is they say, well, look, if there's a loving and powerful God, then why doesn't this God prevent the evil in the world? Stop the crap that happened to me, to my Mm -hmm. sister, to my family or whatever. And the usual answers they get are appeals to mystery or, you know, God's punishing you or God's got a plan. Just trust God. And those Mm -hmm. just don't come across as very satisfying. My response is to come out and say, God really exists. God really does love But God simply doesn't have the kind of omnipotent power that so many people have said God has. God does things. God acts. But God can't single-handedly prevent evil. And that gets people excited because they can actually make sense of that view of God. Okay.
0: I think I saw something from John Piper. Maybe it was like 12, 13 years ago. And it was uh, some article or blog post about how it was to the glory of God that a car accident happens. Yeah. And I was never fully a devotee to him anyways. But that was, I was like, if that's what sovereignty is, that sounds so much unlike Jesus to me. Yeah. And we haven't really even mentioned the word sovereignty yet, but I'm sure you have another way of thinking about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, sovereignty, almighty, omnipotent, all powerful, you know, these words are usually used synonymously, but you can, you know, cash them out and define them in particular ways. But, um, you know, John Piper, one thing I like about him is he's consistent. Like, you know, he thinks God does everything and he thinks it's all for God's glory. So he's willing to say car accidents, you know, contribute to God's glory, even though it flies in the face of what we think is right, true, beautiful, lovely, excellent, good, and what Jesus might say. But he's following the logic of his arguments. And I also follow the logic of my arguments. Most Mm -hmm. Christians, most Christians want to say something like this. God doesn't cause bad car accidents, but God allows them. And they think in saying that, that somehow God's off the hook. Because God didn't do it, God just permitted it. But that doesn't make a lot of sense if we start thinking about what a good parent is like. Does a good parent permit one kid to kill the other? I don't think so. So um, I think we ought to have a rationally consistent theology but start with our intuitions and scriptural claims about a loving
0: God an Abba who really cares hmm. so then i'm curious if who are some of the very first people in this realm of process and open relational theology as far as i understand it's relatively is it 200 years old some of the first people Asking questions?
1: Yeah, you know, you've had hints of this kind of thinking for a long time. Um, Origen, for instance, in the early church says some things that sound pretty open and relational. And he's way back in the early centuries. Mm -hmm. But the label is only a couple of decades old. And it draws Mm -hmm. from a lot of different thinkers. Uh, people more on the progressive end of things like uh, Charles Hartshorn, John Cobb, Alfred North Whitehead, but also people on the more evangelical side of things like Clark Pinnock and John Sanders and William Hasker, Greg Boyd. Um, uh, people from both more conservative and more progressive have said, you know the classic ways of talking about God don't make a lot of sense. Now I don't want to make it sound mm. like everyone, who I just mentioned would agree with everything I just said, <laughs> because the open and relational tent is broad. It has those two main features, but we who are under that umbrella, we argue about all kinds of details. And I'm giving you right now, especially in relation to God's power and the problem of evil, I'm giving you my own particular take on that subject.
0: Sure. Well, how did you fall into it then? If you were, I believe you were raised Methodist, is that right? <laughs>
1: actually church of the nazarene which is like a conservative oh. methodist and i'm still okay. a part of that tradition actually uh you know for me it was kind of reading the bible asking questions about suffering asking questions about free will uh trying to follow my own moral intuitions uh, trying to get an education of what the world might be like and what makes sense. It was kind of a combination of lots of things, uh, maybe a quest. Part of that quest was me being an an avid evangelist. Part of that quest was me being an atheist. (laughs) Um, And that all (laughs) kind of worked together to me eventually get to the place where this way of thinking makes the most sense to me and lots of others. In fact, I'll say this, um, I oftentimes speak at conferences or churches or conventions, and I'll present this general vision of an open and relational God. And people will come up to me afterwards and they'll say, ah, finally, somebody put into words something I've been feeling and thinking for a long time. And so I think there's a lot more people who think this way. They just haven't articulated it maybe as carefully or as
0: thoroughly Mm. as they'd like to have. Well, I think you also, you kind of hit on it briefly. There's a permission thing as well. Mm. Some people get their questions shot down and they're not really given permission to even explore a little bit.
1: Yeah, great point. I think that's right. I was talking with a woman this morning about this and, and I said, you know, I was the kind of kid and I had the kind of parents who encourage questions, who, Mm -hmm. Didn't have this strong authoritarian, you got to do what you've been told and, you know, whatever the pastor says, that must be the truth. It was a, hey, let's think about this. Let's explore. Let's let's uh, come. Let us reason together. Uh, that kind of sure. approach to, to things.
0: I I had parents that are. Well, they were both educators. And yeah. there's something about the classroom. If the classroom's allowed to be a laboratory for ideas, not just a place where ideas are transmitted from one person to another, it's so much better. But that's yep. also the rabbinic tradition, of course, <laughs> right? Yeah. And that's yep. that's something that it feels to me like modern Christianity has lost some of its rabbinic roots. And the I dialogue, agree. I mean, just the dialogue would be so helpful. Yeah.
1: I agree, you know, in Christianity, at least in America, I suspect it's true in other places, there are two kinds of groups of people who um, they are especially averse, opposed to the kind of theology that I'm presenting here. One group of people are what are, are biblical fundamentalists. They have a particular view of the Bible. They think it's inerrant and they think that open and relational thought opposes that, even though I think it doesn't, but they have mm-hmm. this particular interpretation of the Bible. And um, those people um, are hard to reason with initially, but if you can bring scripture on the side of open a relational theology, mm. some of them mm-hmm. come around. Another mm. group of people I call creedal fundamentalists. They're people who, who believe the Bible's got problems, but they think the tradition got it right. And so we have to just swallow whatever Aquinas said or Augustine or even Karl Barth. Uh, You know, those people think somebody in the middle of that. Um, Those people are actually harder for me because those people have a way of thinking and a particular person they raise up as their authority. And I want to say, you know, what about, What tuitions can you trust those? Um, and those folks sometimes have a hard time trusting those things.
0: There seems to be uh, maybe it's confirmation bias, we all do it, but it's hard to shift out of one framework of thinking to another. That's yes, maybe it's emotionally or intellectually exhausting, but then you also have yep. to go back and ask, Have I been wrong this whole time? Yep. And
1: what usually is the case, people shift because they go through through some traumatic. Uh, uh, or maybe their kid got hit by a car or maybe they realize they're queer or maybe they have some sort of pastor in their church who cheats on people, some sort of dramatic mm-hmm. thing that shocks them into thinking, oh, Maybe the usual way of thinking isn't the best way of thinking, mm. and when that happens, many of them turn to open a relational theology.
0: Yeah, it's it's in your books. You actually have a a whole section devoted to the randomness and the regularity of life. Mm. And I mean, it's always a good idea to do alliteration like that when you're writing a <laughs> book. Of course, I didn't think of that, for... but it is nice. Yeah, <laughs> but. As as I've read some of your works and listened to things from you, I've I think I've heard the tone of someone being very pastoral, even though mm-hmm. you're in an academic setting. And it's it's interesting because academic settings tend to create people that are logistical and defensive.
1: <laughs> but
0: mm-hmm. that didn't happen to you. <laughs> yeah. What's the secret sauce then?
1: It's funny you say that because I've never sort of set out to be pastoral. Um, And then people say that to me and I think, well, why is that the case? I suspect it's because what I care most about is love, not only the theory, Mm -hmm. but also the practice. And love often means compassion, listening, and being attuned to the actual lived experience of people. And, you know, that sounds mm-hmm. like what pastors are supposed to do. So I sound pastoral, I guess.
0: But I, I don't know if this is the right way of thinking about it, but so much of my own theology has shifted towards, I don't want to say less of figuring out what God is like, but it, it kind of has dragged along more and more of what being human is supposed to be as well. You know, mm. at least in more reformed backgrounds, there's the understanding that Jesus is the double revelation, that he reveals to us what God is like and reveals what humans are supposed to be like. And that's, well, I guess it would be Bart, too. He talks about the theoanthropology. We're never doing just strictly one or the other, it's both and. Um, but I, I'm interested because uh, across the ways, it sounds like you're writing another book but it's specifically hitting on omnipotence and amipotence, which I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that second word right.
1: (laughs) I call it amipotence.
0: Amipotence. Okay. Yeah. 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 So what do you hope to achieve with this?
1: Well, saying that God is not omnipotent, Hits people like square in the eyes. They say, "You got to be kidding me!" I mean, that's like the number one thing most people believe about God. When when Hollywood makes a movie about God and they ask Morgan Freeman and you know to be God, they call it <laughs> Bruce Almighty, is what they call it. They don't call it Bruce All Loving. They they, they, God, true. they drop on God's yeah. power. <laughs> And I'm coming right at that and saying, that's the bad way to go about it. But what's going to really make people, um, what's the right word? What's going to surprise people? I'll put it mildly. What's going to surprise people is that I make my argument from scripture and Uh say that the Bible doesn't portray God as omnipotent or even almighty. Those words are based on mistranslations. And then I'm Mm. going to come across with philosophy and saying even conservative theologians have recognized their philosophical problems with omnipotence. And then, of Mm. course, I'm going to hit the problem of evil, which I've done in other books. But I conclude by offering an alternative that's called omnipotence, thinking about God's power in terms of love. And um, I'm hoping Mm. that'll be out this spring. This spring. This spring,
0: yeah. Oh wow! Okay. I think omnipotence. And across some of your your writings, you mentioned about love is uncontrolling, the power of love, the primacy of love. Love always invites; it never forces or coerces. I think that's all, absolutely true, just of like life experience, but, mm. um. Have you ever, have you ever read anything from Robert Farrar Capone?
1: I have, yeah. Not a lot, Just but a I do things. I know that name. Yeah.
0: he's got a really good book on parables, and in that he he talks about the difference between right-handed and left-handed power, and he likens oh, I've them. I've heard this. It's like the right hand is with a hammer, it's with a gun, it's with punches, and then the left is like the scent of a pie like you smell ah. really good bread baking or cookies and you're kind of I don't want to say you're seduced maybe that's the right way of thinking about it but um I would like to how how does God seduce us then in this way yeah and I, I'm not even sure if I'm articulating it well but the idea that God's not always about to drop a hammer but that God is trying to romance us into another way of being trying to romance creation into another way of being that's very attractive
1: yeah i'm totally on board with that i like a word that john wesley used uh, he used the word woo w-o-o oh, to woo because yeah. um, that's kind of a love word you know you think about the lover wooing the love the beloved and that uh-huh. suggests that there has to be a response it's not the hammer coming down as you mentioned. But there's another aspect of this that very few theologians I have read have addressed that I that, like right there in the tradition, not Tom making something up from out in left field, but right there in the tradition, but it hasn't been developed. And that's the idea that God's being, God's composition to use technical language, God's ontological makeup, is as a spirit god is wind or mind or breath or soul uh and this universal spirit doesn't have a body the classic word is incorporeal Mm -hmm. so while john may pick up a hammer and smash it on a nail god doesn't actually have a divine hand to pick up a hammer and smash a nail god is this something like Well, spirit. I'll go back to spirit again. God's a universal spirit, and if we keep that in mind, it fits nicely with uh, what was the illustration used—smelling a a pie, (laughs) or yeah, yeah. cookies or bread. Yes. Yeah. Um, So something incorporeal that can't pick up rocks, can't punch you in the nose, can't lift five hundred pounds in a deadlift. But is always present, calling, persuading, wooing, enticing, insisting, reaching out and saying, respond to my overtures of love. That's the kind of activity I think God has. Now, that sounds weak to a lot of people. It sounds like God's a wimp. Because they have in mind that the most powerful being has got to be the one who can lift up the hammer and bang it on the nail. Or at least if God doesn't have a hand, God can somehow manipulate and control those who do have hands to make sure they lift up the hammer. But if you begin with the supposition that God doesn't have omnipotence, that love comes first in God and that there are other agents in the world that have power of their own, then you naturally come to think that the most powerful one would have to be someone who is omnipresent, who can lure or woo those with agency Mm. to Mm -hmm. cooperate with some plan, some goal, some desire that love might flourish. And that's the way I think about God's power.
0: Can I ask then, how, how do you think about punishing? How does God punish? I mean, for me, I've, I've jettisoned that idea. I think more in terms of God prunes rather than punishes. But what might you say about some of those passages where it sounds like God's punishing?
1: I don't think God punishes. I'll just put it bluntly on the table. However, okay. I think biblical passages that talk about divine punishment are pointing to the natural negative consequences that come from choosing less than the loving best. Uh, So, you know, the old phrase, sin is its own punishment. Um, mm -hmm. That if God is calling you to do X, and that is something that makes the world in a better place, and you do Y, well, that's going to be something that makes the world less than a better place. And that's a natural negative consequence of choosing other than what God wants.
0: Which I guess that that is what happens in Romans 1. The consequence for sin is that you fall further into it. Yeah, yeah, nice. Uh, That's interesting. So then if love is always inviting of all these things, I like the term. There is a sense of weakness to this. And uh, I've only had the chance to interact with Jack Caputo a few times but he, he has a book called The Weakness of God. And of course, he takes it in a different level, like ontologically. But you can say weakness, but sometimes I feel like the appropriate word just might be humility. Mm. God is the most humble being in the universe. And so, of course, he's not going to be interested in flashy moments of exerting or, or proving strength. Because... This guy, sh- this God showed up as a Naz, uh, <laughs> a carpenter from Nazareth back in the day. And that's not necessarily a glorifying, triumphant, kingly state, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, if power is overpower, is control, then I think Jack Caputo is right that God is weak. Uh, but I don't okay. really like the language of weakness myself. So uh-huh. I, don't, I don't use it when I talk about the God I believe in. Because I think that power is about influence. And a being who is present to wooing, calling, insisting, uh, persuading everything in the entire universe is going to be the most influential of all. So I think God is the most powerful in that sense, not weak. Um, so I want to talk about divine power in ways that avoid weakness, but also
0: avoid control, overpowering uh-huh. classical omnipotence. My, my mind just kind of gave the idea of a magnet. Is that anywhere close? That's ah, I like that. Yeah, that's pretty good. Usually but, though magnets
1: we think of inanimate objects attracting and right. I want to think that at least uh, well yeah I want to think that we creatures have some kind of free response to
0: this this pull of God so then what is the thing what's the thing when we reject that pull what is how would you define sin in this approach
1: I would define sin as. Failing to respond appropriately in any moment to God's call to love. So I do believe sin occurs. I believe I have sinned. (laughs) I know I've sinned. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, sin is still an issue in our lives. And I think of it as our choosing other than what the love God calls us to do in any particular moment. Now, we get in certain patterns that uh, involve us being more inclined to choose something other than god's love these habits Mm -hmm. and i think that's what christians have usually meant by a sinful nature or propensity to sin there's some problems with that language that i've discussed in various places but it's a way of trying to get past thinking of sin as only a single act here or there that we might have certain habits that incline us to not cooperate well with God and we have to change those habits. I think that's important language.
0: What's what's also interesting is so far in chatting the word logic has not come up a whole lot. But love, you just keep dropping the word love all over the place. And it's maybe that's also why people find you pastoral. And mm. I mean, you already kind of mentioned that, but there's the primacy of love over logic kind of lets God be free to be free, you know? Mm. I think it's Richard Rohr, he talks about a good theology is one that keeps God free for humans and keeps people free for God.
1: Yeah, and anytime good, it's Alan. bound
0: in either direction, um, yeah. it's you got to jettison it. I think well I'm not against logic I'm not against reason I'm not
1: against philosophy so I don't want to come across as that but I uh-huh. do start with love and then I ask what's the logic of love what's what's reasonable from a loving perspective the and that love. yeah and then that sort of lays out or at least points me in a particular direction to do
0: theology Now have have you felt over the years of doing open and relational theology process things do you feel as though like it's increased the wonder for you has it you know because sometimes I meet people that are theologians and they don't seem mystified by God at all anymore like is this even still interesting to you um
1: definitely still interesting yeah
0: where do yeah, you find I, the I wonder
1: guess, yeah for me it's um, I have some certain categories that I don't know with certainty are true. But boy, I'm pretty committed to them. I'm trying to live my life as if they're true. But in those categories, there's all kinds of things I don't understand and I'm still working on. And because I think life is an adventure, going back Mm -hmm. to your hiking metaphor, life is a journey that doesn't have a settled destination. And I, and not even God, knows with absolute certainty where this journey is going to end up. It's just continually moving into an open and undetermined future. That, for me, keeps me plenty excited, plenty um, inquisitive
0: (laughs) Uh as I move through life. It's it's Antonio Machado and his poem, Pilgrim, There Is No Path. Paths are made by walking. Oh, yeah. okay. I do know that line. Yeah. I was like, I think Brian McLaren maybe used it in the title of a book at one point too. Okay. But the idea that this is this is a really this thing is still being made. But that's and I I definitely want to bring in Ilya because Ilya Delio, I mean, some of her books are, are small or short, but they, they pack a punch. Yeah and She's always been, maybe it's the Franciscanism in her, but she's always been about a very relational understanding of God and, and, that's right. and these things. But I think it, it was through some of her writings that I was led to think, oh, we, it's about all hands on deck. And so this whole thing about being a Christian and being passive and you sit back and watch God save everything, like that's not, that's not exactly
1: the game here. No, but that, that makes sense if God is omnipotent. <laughs> I mean, if God is okay. in control, then yeah, well, what are we going to do to change what God's either already predestined or God's got the kind of power to make sure the, the, the right results end up being the case? In an open and relational framework, because the future isn't open and because God isn't omnipotent, God actually needs you and me
0: yeah. to make the
1: world place and that i think is at least it's appealing to me i think it's appealing a lot to people
0: but i think that there's that you use the word need the idea yeah. that god needs people i i think that's a radical shift for some people huge if you took at random
1: 10 theologians in the united states And you ask them, does God need people? Nine out of 10 would say no. I'd be the one standing there saying, yep, God does need us. Now, I don't think God needs us in order for God to exist. I think God exists necessarily. But I think God needs us because God is a loving God. And love requires others. Love isn't controlling. And it requires the other's response.
0: That's the need of love. Mm yeah and, and in other places you you bring in um, understandings of love that don't include desire are are lacking in some ways. It's like, well of course love would actually want to seek something out. Love doesn't just sit back and say arbitrarily, I have to love everything everywhere because I am love. It's like you no know, love love's got this element of is it pursuit? What would you say to that one? Yeah, love has to has to pursue. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it's an activity, and I think it's an activity moving into an open future that desires well-being. So uh, it can't sit back and do nothing. It's it doesn't rest on its laurels. It's it's on the move. We might say, um, and that kind of love sometimes is a love that appreciates the value it sees in the world um it's a what in in greek thought was called an eros kind of love that sees the value valuable and beautiful and excellent and revels in that appreciates it mm-hmm. other times it sees what's bad wrong destructive hurtful harmful and acts self sacrificially to try to change that and often Love is a kind of friendship. It's a, it's a moving into a relationship with one or more in which, in mm. solidarity, you're trying to make your lives and the world somehow better than it was before.
0: So, I want to, I want to start to close it out, and I want to bring it at some point to crucifixion, and again, okay. it's, it's it's because. I think it's Ilya, she kind of did it, and so did um, Bonaventure uh, of, uh, where is he, Egio somewhere. But the idea that the cross is where love was most revealed seems to be a, a pretty consistent thing across at least all the traditions. So it sounds as though open and relational theology just affirms that almost like in a... it's like a par excellence because this is this is God being quote weak this is God romancing this is God not controlling or forcing so how do you understand the crucifixion now after all of this
1: yeah i mean a lot of people point to the crucifixion as an expression of divine love but a good majority think that god decided before all eternity that Jesus was gonna die on a cross and that everything was predetermined. And then when Jesus comes to earth, he knows he's gonna die, it's already set in stone and Mm. it's just destined. Um, Now, I don't find that particularly loving approach to things. Um, I Mm. don't find it appealing to think that God from all eternity was gonna make sure either directly or indirectly, his son was gonna die. Um, mm-hmm. I find it much more appealing to think that it was a voluntary decision on Jesus's part, that he is caught up in the midst of living a life of love, knowing that it's highly likely living a life of love is going to lead some people to be upset and want to kill you. And that mm-hmm. when that happens, the cross mm-hmm. is not the necessary or inevitable, but highly likely result of what it means for sin to respond to perfect love and that's why today when people love well they're often not liked (laughs) because um, it makes some people uncomfortable especially people who have something to lose because of love so that's how i think about the uh, the cross of christ it shows a god who suffers it shows someone who doesn't retaliate and go eye for an eye but it also shows that in a world in which there's sin and evil, one yeah. who loves perfectly is likely going to meet a
0: painful end. Oh wow. So then it, it actually still kind of holds up uh repent or perish. Change <laughs> this way of change this way because this is this is going down a bad path. Yes. Yeah. yeah it, it does. I would love to to write a book someday not a meta not metanoia right change the mind but instead it's metacardia oh nice change the heart which would be ezekiel yeah I 36 I like that. metacardia well listen i i was looking forward to this really for since you agreed to do this i really appreciate your time i really do and i i've been a fan from a distance for the past six years and whenever um, – so I used to be a youth pastor, and with my group of volunteers, I actually bought your books, and I gave to them. Oh, at a Presbyter- well, thanks, John. At a, at a <laughs> Presbyterian church because I knew it, – it's like, hey, if you want to think outside of the box, you're in. Here's a great way to start. And I, I once had one of my volunteers say, this answered so many questions for me. And that's from a Reformed perspective with so much sovereignty and really it's like Greek fatalism just dressed up in Christian vocabulary, right? (laughs) Um, But I really appreciate your time. What do you think would be the best first book for people to get from you as an introduction? What would be a start? Yeah, I
1: wrote a little book called Open and Relational Theology, An Introduction to Life-Changing Ideas. And it gives, in very accessible language, these big ideas that we've been discussing here. So I think starting with that
0: one would be great. Okay. And then, in case they're interested, what about the Center for Open and Relational Theology? You do conferences with that?
1: Yeah, yeah. The Center brings together people of all kinds of backgrounds, uh, academic experiences, vocations, ages etc. to explore what open and relational theology might look like and as it addresses different topics, subjects. Um, So you don't have to be an academic to be a part of the center, you don't have to, you know, know whitehead forwards and back backwards and forwards or whatever. Um, Uh It's a way to go deeper on these all
0: important issues. And if I, if I remember right, your last conference was in a gorgeous mountainous area, right? Yes, that's right. So, yeah,
1: we have an annual summer conference at a, a ski resort that's located between <laughs> Grand Teton National Park and Yellowstone National Park. And everybody's invited if they'd like to come. This year, okay. it's uh, July 10 through 14. And uh, we have, and Delio is one of our speakers this year. Oh, she well really? Trip Fuller is, and some other folks, uh, it'll be a good time.
0: That's fantastic. Well, thanks, Tom. I appreciate you. you, Thank you, you. You're welcome.